stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Welcome to episode four of Unknown Orbits. Who goes there? Science fiction horror. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Tonight we're talking about John W. Campbell's famous legendary story, Who Goes There? This is a novella that was published under the pseudonym Don A. Stewart in the August 1938 issue of Astounding Science. A group of scientists are trapped in the Antarctic in a science station with a shape-shifting alien revived after millions of years frozen under the ice. One by one, the alien kills and replaces the men, creating an atmosphere of fear and paranoia until it is finally killed, just as it's about to finish building a spaceship that would unleash it upon the wider world. This is a classic story. In fact, voted by the Science Fiction Writers of America in 1973 as one of the stories representing the most influential, important, and memorable science fiction that has ever been written. It's a personal favorite of mine. I really love it. Of course, I read it after I had seen both The Thing from Another World movie in 1950 then see it in 1950 it's from 1950 not that old and then of course the 1982 john carpenter the thing the remake sort of of thing from another world the thing from another world the original uh, howard hawks version was one of my favorite science fiction horror movies when i was a kid it's widely considered one of the great classics suspense it invented certain techniques for creating suspense. If you remember the Geiger counter, it would start beeping and the light would start flashing faster as the monster got closer. It's a, it's a great movie. I loved it. It was one of my favorite. So when I got the chance recently to actually read the novella, I totally enjoyed it. It's every bit as good as it's, as it's billed to be. It's a terrific story. The 1982 version is very true to the plot and to many of the characters in that movie. Of course, it was published in 1938, so all of the characters were middle-aged white guys, but it was pretty true to that narrative from the 1982 movie. And it was also very true to the whole theme of paranoia created by not knowing whether the man next to you was themselves or whether they were some kind of an alien replacement. So that's, for a story from the 1930s, I think it's remarkably modern and, and sophisticated. It doesn't have as much of the gee whiz sort of element that you see in a lot of early 19, early science fiction. And I really enjoyed it as the valuable and important story that it is. I do remember seeing both movies and I did read the story. What I remember from the story is that it was... I guess in television terms, you would call it a, a pocket story. It's a story that takes place within a confined area. That's one of the charms of it, because the first point they make in both movies is that the weather has changed. So they're now cut off the world. And this horrible problem 
is something they have to deal with themselves. I think that's kind of part of the manly aspect of it is there's no asking for help. Whatever they can do to take care of it is what they have to do. That also ties into the theme of the age and certainly the theme that continued on, guided by John W. Campbell in the 1940s of the competent man. So it fits very much into his worldview that competent men, technically skilled men, scientists, wise men, learned men were the ones that would lead the world into the bright future. This is not a bright future sort of science fiction story, but the idea of the competent man is, I think, is there in it. I think the competent man comes out of the technocracy movement of the 20s. Right. Starting with Gernsbach, who was first and before anything else, he was a amateur radio enthusiast. And he was very important figure in the development of, of first amateur radio and then to some lesser degree, commercial radios. You know, that is the tradition that came out of Gernsbach is that technical background. So where was Campbell in his career? The background of the story is somewhat interesting. According to Campbell, after a conversation with a chemist in 1937, he came up with the idea of a creature that could change itself into any other being. So in 1937, he actually wrote another story, which was called Imitation, which was actually a humorous take on the idea of a shape-shifting alien, which two fugitives named Penton and Blake wrangle with a species of shape-shifting alien. It was bought by Mort Weisinger of Thrilling Wonder Stories. It was in the December... 1936 Thrilling Wonder Stories, which does not tie into his statement that he got the idea in 1937, that consistency. Hmm. But at any rate, so in 1936, he was actually at that point in between careers. And he was writing a lot of stories because he needed the money. It was the middle of the depression. Like a lot of people, he did whatever he could do to make any kind of money he could. But in the case of imitation, it was successful enough where he had... Oh, I'm sorry. When it was published in Thrilling Wonder Stories, it was renamed Brain Stealers of Mars, which I guess is okay for a humorous story. Looks great on a front cover. I didn't look up what the uh, cover looked like. I'd love to see that, but I can just picture it in my mind. He wrote three sequels to the story, The Double Minds, The Immortality Seekers, and The Tenth World. Clearly, that was an idea that struck and that was popular. That was his first stab at it. His next attempt at the shapeshifter story was who goes there, but he originally intended it to be a novel, and he actually wrote most of the novel. There's an introductory section that had the background and more of an explanation for, for the alien and everything. That was called Frozen Hell. For whatever reason, probably because it was easier to sell a novella than a novel, I'm guessing, is that he trimmed it down to its currently known form and who goes there. And that was in 1937. The interesting thing is he intended it to be a horror story from the beginning, even though when he would later become editor of Astounding Magazine, he was not a big fan of horror. But it's kind of funny that the thing that really got him noticed as a writer was a science fiction horror story. So in 1937, one of his publishers that he was selling a lot of stories to 
Street and Smith owned Astounding Science Fiction. In the early fall of 1937, they canceled seven titles. Astounding was not one of them. Astounding was one of them that survived. But in the process, they wound up losing the editor of Astounding. I think what it was is the editor was promoted upstairs and was in charge of multiple magazines. So suddenly he found himself with a job opportunity and was offered the editorship in October of 1937 of Astounding Magazine. And of course, as they say, the rest is history. So the following year, he published that story, Who Goes There, under a pseudonym in Astounding Magazine. So there was a lot that led up to that story. Obviously, he had perfected some ideas, having written four shape-shifting stories before he sat down and tackled Who Goes There. So I would imagine that that a number of story ideas came out of those and were incorporated in Who Goes There. I think it's interesting that at a pivotal time in his life, where the most important decision he ever made, which was to accept the job as editor at Astounding, happened right about the time, right in the middle of the time where he wrote the story and then later published it himself in the magazine. I just think that's interesting that probably the best thing that he ever did happened right at that particular moment. I never really looked at it as a horror story, but when you mentioned that, I realized if you just cut off the the bookends of discovering spaceship and where they discovered that the alien was constructing another ship to get him to a warmer climate, if you cut those two pieces out, it is absolutely a straight horror story with a more unique monster. Yeah, I don't know, and this would be an interesting topic to follow up on at some point, how novel the idea of a shape-shifting alien was when he was writing these stories. I can't imagine there weren't any before he wrote the story, but he claimed he was inspired by a conversation he had with a chemist to come up with the idea of a shape-shifting alien. But John W. Campbell was known for claiming credit for a lot of things, some of which he deserved credit for, some probably gilding the rose a little bit. Let me make a pitch for who goes there as a great horror story, regardless of the beginning or the end or any part of it. To me, there's two parts to the underlying horror of who goes there. The first part is that you could be eliminated and replaced by this alien. They don't just make a copy of you. They absorb you and destroy you as a person and replace you completely. That's a horrifying idea. That's your basic body horror. Yes, very much so. And then the second horror element is the paranoia. Once everybody realizes what's happening, it's that idea that the person on your right and the person on your left could be alien shapeshifters. And it's only a matter of time before you're the last one left. You know, suddenly all of the men in the room turn to you and you realize I'm the last human being left. That would have been a great ending for the story. That was the ending in the thing, basically. No, the thing ended ambiguously, which I love. That To me, that's one of the things that makes it a great, 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 great movie is that after they blow up the camp, kill the alien, allegedly, Kurt Russell and I forget the character's name are the only two left alive. And they basically sit down and share a bottle of scotch 
And it's like, Kurt Russell says, well, why don't we just see what happens? The ambiguity that that is a great ending. One of my favorite endings of the movie. Okay. You have convinced me that the ambiguity is a better ending where they say, I thought you didn't drink. Yeah. And he said something, you were gone for 10 minutes. Where were you? Yeah. I think that was another one. But I would have personally loved the ending where Kurt Russell, he's in a room and there's three other guys and suddenly they all turn and he realizes at that moment, he's the last human being left. But that's how I would have written it. Let me switch over to a general discussion of science fiction. One of the things I did recently, I've collected a whole bunch of books as a part of this personal project of mine to rediscover science fiction. And one of them was an anthology of horror science fiction called And In Space No One Can Hear You Scream, taken from the great alien. And there are some very good stories in there. But there were several stories that were basically science fiction stories that featured some kind of a monster or alien that had to be destroyed. And they destroyed the alien or the monster and everybody lived happily ever after. And to me, that really wasn't science fiction. Just because you have a monster in it, just because you have a terrible murderous alien in it, to me, that doesn't make it science fiction horror. You do lean more towards traditional horror anyway. I am a guy who was into science fiction in my youth, but then when I became a teenager, I totally got heavily into horror and fantasy. And pretty much that was my main interest for most of my adulthood. But that's why I think I can comment on this in an enlightening way is that good horror in my mind is subversive. Now there's been a million movies, books, and short stories produced that are basically a monster hunt where some monster appears and the villagers or the scientists or the people on the spaceship or whoever it is band together and some of them get killed, but the survivors manage to defeat the monster. Everybody lives happily. That's a perfectly entertaining form of a story. But to me, that's not really horror because horror, you have to lose some. When you say subversive, I immediately pictured subverting trust. You have a horror story about dogs. So you're subverting our trust of dogs. That's what Cujo was. It was the family dog turns into a rabid, murderous beast. What I mean by subversive is that A good horror story plays on your internal unconscious fears and plagues you with the idea that there is a boogeyman, that there is something out there in the dark and it's going to kill you or do horrible things to you and nobody's going to save you. And this gets into the specifics of science fiction horror, but the universe is not a safe place. The universe can be a hostile place. To me, a good science fiction horror is either a science gone wrong story, where it's the old trope from the horror movies of the 1950s. You know, sometimes man asks questions he should never ask or tries to learn too much. The idea that science gone wrong. And if you think about it, with the classic era of science fiction that we're looking into, there's a ton of fiction that's very science positive. It's science is going to revolutionize the world. Science is going to take us to the stars. Science is going to eliminate disease and hunger and and all of this. So there's a lot of positive science stories or even things where something goes wrong. The underlying premise is don't worry, science will save the day. 
That's the underlying premise. So much science fiction of the 1930s, 1940s, well into a science fiction horror undermines that premise in saying that science can be terrible. Science made the H-bomb. Science killed hundreds of thousands of people. The other portion of science fiction horror is the idea that lurking out in space are terrible things. That's the very Lovecraftian idea of science fiction horror, that just beyond the next solar system, just in the other next galaxy, there's horrible, horrible beings that will just wipe out mankind without even a second thought. To me, that's the distinction between science fiction horror and science fiction stories that happen to have a monster. What I'd like to do is I'd like to just throw out a couple of examples here that are famous examples of what I consider to be science horror. The first one is not only the first science fiction horror story, but it's widely considered to be the first science fiction story, period, which is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I can't think of a more classic story of science gone wrong. That's one of the major themes of that book is the idea of the hubris of Dr. Frankenstein thinking that he can create life from dead tissue and challenge God. That's a major theme in the book. I read it when I was 10. I've reread it several times since then. I read it in college. There's a really excellent biography of Mary Shelley out there, and I wish I could remember the name of it. Her life was fascinating, completely fascinating. And she wrote this book when she was 18 years old. I reread the book because what I came to understand about Mary Shelley was, I think the main theme of Frankenstein is that of alienation. Because at the time she wrote that book, she and her lover, Percy Shelley, were on the run in Europe. They had fled England because Percy Shelley was still married to someone else. And they were engaged in what was called free love at the time. So they were wandering continental Europe, falling in with people like Lord Byron and exploring Europe and discussing philosophy and science and literature and poetry. And everywhere they went, polite society scorned them. They were not welcome in polite society because they were notorious. To me, the real theme of Frankenstein is the idea that society is rejecting you because of who you are and not understanding really who you really are. That had to be what was on her mind when she was writing it. I haven't read it myself. Shame on you. Sorry, but I was going to ask if the religious view of creating life was a significant part of the book. It was sort of a fig leaf in the book, I think. Okay. I mean, at the end, they're sort of like, well, see what happens when you challenge. The religious element was not terribly strong. But it was more about the monster himself being rejected by society. Yes, right. Okay. So he tried to find a place in society and couldn't. And because of that, he became a So the next one on my list, which I think there could be a direct connection to who goes, is H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. This was actually serialized in the February and March and April issue of Guess What magazine. Astounding stories in 1936. So I think it's hard to imagine that John W. Campbell had not read that story before or while he was writing Who Goes There. 
and had to have been to some degree influenced by it, at least by setting it in the Antarctic. They must have at least got that from. So I think the timing of that and the timing of when he was working on who goes there and his predecessors can't be ignored, I don't think. And that's one of H.P. Lovecraft's greatest stories at the Mountain of Madness. It's one of his most weird and psychedelic, but it has true moments of cosmic horror in it, which is slightly different than science fiction, but maybe it's a subgenre of science fiction horror. And then the next one on my list is one of my favorite books ever. It's very high on my I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, published in 1954. This is the story that was adapted three times, once as The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent, The Omega Man, starring Charlton, and then the horrible version starring <laughs> the slap-happy fiend Will Smith in the early 2000s. That was a terrible version. It was. It was the worst out of the three, no question about it. But the book is, I love it because it really nails the loneliness and the angst of being literally the last man on earth. And he had an appreciable character arc in that book. Yes. Yeah. Matheson's one of my favorite writers. And this, in my opinion, if it's not the best thing he ever wrote, it's one of the best things. Someday it would be nice if it was really adapted into a really quality version of it. And by the way, just as a side note, he invented the zombie genre with that book. Because not only did George Romero admit reading, but he said that the movie with Vincent Price, which came out in 1964, was influential on him as he was writing the script and putting together Night of the Living Dead. So I think you can totally give credit to Richard Matheson for being the godfather of the zombie story. Even though they weren't zombies in the book, they were vampires, but they were almost more like zombies. So the next one that I'm going to use an example, is The Fly by George Langellan, which was published in the June 1957 issue of Playboy magazine. Really? Way to go, George. Well, they paid a lot. Yeah. Growing up as a writer, it was always one of those things. I want to get a story published in Playboy magazine, not because they're Playboy, because they paid way more than anybody else. Good for George. Doesn't seem like the sort of story you'd want to be writing while you're taking a look at half-naked women. And of course, that was adapted twice into two very good movies. And it is a very horrifying, if you read the actual story, it's pretty horrifying. It has that not quite as melodramatically staged as the original, where they find the fly in the spider's web with the white head. But it's got that in the original story. It's got its horrific moments. And again, what is that? It's a story of science gone wrong. Going back to I Am Legend is also a story of science gone wrong. It's a biological weapon or some experiment. He never really comes out and says exactly what it was, but it was clear that some science project went wrong to create all the vampires. And the fly is every bit as classic as Frankenstein in terms of the science gone The hubris of the scientist in Frankenstein and the fly. Right. But the great premise, the great gimmick of the fly is that he didn't really do anything wrong. The fly got into the other cabinet when he wasn't looking. So it's not like he was doing something unholy or forbidden. It was a legitimate science experiment. The only thing he did wrong is he was using himself as a test subject. But it was a completely innocent mistake where the fly gets in the other chamber and has the horrific results. 
So it doesn't really quite have that that element that Frankenstein does, but it certainly is science gone wrong. Can I ask which version you prefer? I know which one I do. I have a soft spot in my heart for the 1957 version with Vincent Price, because number one, David Hedison plays the scientist. And he's one of my favorite actors because he was in Voyage at the Bottom of the Sea. So I'm a huge David Hedison fan. But it's that last scene in the movie where the little boy says, oh, I found the fly with the white head. And Vincent Price and the police inspector go out in the yard. And there's the guy in the web going, help me, help me. And the spider's closing in. That, as a kid, that freaked me right out. So I love that movie just for that final scene. And of course, David Cronenberg, great horror director, his version of The Fly is fantastic. It's a great movie. It has some equally horrifying moments in it, but I'm just never going to get past that little guy with the spider body screaming, help me, help me. That's always going to give me it. And it had the mercy killing ending, which you would never do today. Vincent Price picks up a rock and kills him. No, actually, it's the police inspector who does it. Oh, And after they do that, they're about to take his wife off to prison for murder. And the police inspector says, well, obviously she was in. So he's basically saying, we're just going to cover this all up. And he did it because you could tell that he was just so filled with horror at the sudden realization that everything that he was being told by the wife was true and the horrifying implications right there in front of him. So that act of picking up the rock and smashing the fly was a reflexive act of horror and shock. Beyond the creep-out factor I got as a kid, re-watching it later as an adult writer, I liked that ending that they put not exactly a twist, but they turned the whole thing around where the police inspector realized it was all true, it was horrible, and that poor woman, that poor wife, what she did, and all of that is in his face and in his speech and everything at that very last moment and it's just really nice neat ending very clean ending the mystery is brought to an end the scientist is dead but between the two i think i prefer the modern version largely because of the uh, body hoarder of the slow dissolution and change from human to part fly it was very well done. And of course, it came out in the theaters at just the right time for me. It could be the greatest body horror movie ever made. Cronenberg is the unchallenged master of body horror. That's his greatest movie. You're right. The slow deterioration of him, not only physically, but mentally, that's what makes that a and great performance by both Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum. But i just never going to get past that final scene in the original. That's just for me. That's the greatest. And both of them had sequels, which were not as successful. Not very good. Yeah, I've watched both. I want all three of the, all two of the sequels to the original. And actually the third sequel, second sequel to the original fly had nothing really to do. There wasn't a fly in it. I didn't know there was another sequel. Yeah, it was made many years later. It was four years after. And it's actually an interesting little movie. It's a very much a B movie. It looks like it was a script, a standalone horror movie script that some producer who had rights to make another fly movie. It's called The Curse of the Fly. Slapped that title on it to try to put people in the seats. 
and it really didn't have anything to do with the original story. But it's not bad. It's not. It's a nice little B movie. And then the sequel to the David Cronenberg one is just a. I remember the plot was pretty standard. The previously unknown son. The horror in that one, the new Cronenberg sequel, was that she was pregnant when Jeff Goldblum died and gave birth to a son. And there was concern whether he was going to inherit his father's problems. And of course he did. But it's so unmemorable that I don't even remember what happened. I've got one more story. And this is one of my personal favorite stories going all the way back to my childhood. The Velt by Ray Bradbury. It originally appeared in the September 23rd, 1950 issue of the Saturday Evening Post. Mr. Bradbury had a lot of success fairly early and was getting published in quality magazines like Saturday Evening Post. And it was shortly thereafter republished in the anthology, The Illustrated Man, which is where I read it. It's a story about a couple of young kids in the future. They have sort of a virtual reality system in their in their nursery where they can go to different places in the world and their favorite is Africa. They love to go to the plains of Africa with giraffes and elephants and lions. Not to give the ending away or anything, but basically the parents become concerned that these kids are getting too deeply into this virtual reality world, which is kind of prescient if you think about what parents might be concerned about today, about their kids spending all their time on their phones. So they they try to turn off the virtual reality system in the nursery, and it goes horribly wrong. That's a great horror story. Ray Bradbury wrote a number of horror stories when he was younger. He actually, I believe, had a couple of them published in Weird Tales. So he had a, he had a real talent for it. Again, it's a science gone wrong story this system that's supposed to help educate their children and keep them occupied turns into something much, much worse and dangerous. That's my last selection on the list. But I just wanted to bring in a selection of examples that demonstrate the prevalence of the idea of science gone wrong and that there's no happy endings in any of these stories, really. You've defined a science fiction horror as the situation comes from science fiction elements, but the action of the story is on people in a way that's recognizable as standard horror. Yes, I would say that's pretty close. I think the thing that I would add is that science itself is almost the villain in science fiction, which is polar opposite to the science will save us all philosophy of a lot of science fiction in the 30s, the 40s, and 50s. Yeah. It's the mirror image of science fiction, the dark mirror image. Everything's in reaction to something else. Once you have science fiction stories where science saves the day, then you're going to have people writing stories the opposite of that, in reaction to that, where science doesn't save the day or science creates the problem to begin with. Well, and that was, on a superficial level, that was the theme of a lot of the science fiction movies of the 1950s. All of the giant monster movies, it was always science mm. did something. There was radiation or something that created the problem, created the monsters. But in a lot of those movies, what did you have? You had the military man and the scientist joined together and they used science to defeat the monster. So 
strictly looking at it by my standard, that's not science fiction horror. It's again, science fiction story with a monster in it. Yeah. And there is a big difference in my mind between that and science fiction horror. I'm trying to think off the top of my head if there were any other more grim. Well, the original Godzilla was pretty grim. If you if you've seen the Japanese version, that's an incredibly grim movie that in my opinion is more about the firebombing of Tokyo and the use of the atomic bomb from the Japanese perspective. That's a very horrific movie. But, you know, at the end, the scientist is the one who saves the day with the uh, oxygen generator. But what does he do before he goes off to sacrifice his life? He destroys all of his research because he realizes this can never fall into the hands of the human race. It's too dangerous of a weapon. I think that would qualify as science fiction. I have one. The Outer Limits adaptation of The Puppet Master. That's not one that I can remember, but that was a dark show. Yeah, I actually was. The more I think of it, I haven't seen them lately. The Puppet Masters, you know the basic plot? It's a human replacement. I don't yeah. think I've actually read the story. Story is, it's good. It's Heinlein. The uh, Outer Limits episode is nice. It's pretty good. The movie in the 1980s is a personal favorite. It had several of my favorite actors, Donald Sutherland. Oh, Donald Sutherland. And there's another guy who's a character actor, Keith David. Oh, yeah. 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 He's, he's per very good. But I, I think I actually missed that movie. So I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm not familiar with the plot. I would put it on your list. Okay. Well, that is something looking ahead. Something that I intend to do at some point is to develop a list of science fiction, horror, novels and stories and movies. And there's a lot of very obvious choices for movies like Event Horizon, ah. which in my opinion is one of the all-time great science fiction horror films. Absolutely. Really, really terrific. Anything to do with eyes makes it horror. Yes. So maybe a future episode, we'll revisit this topic and I'll have a more comprehensive list. But I'm glad we had an opportunity to discuss it. And I like the idea that I've been able to more or less define it. So if we do wind up talking about it in the future, we've got a good starting point for discussion. Yeah. So any any other thoughts tonight? Just one very side thought. Campbell didn't set out to write a story that would be remembered seven or eight decades later. What he did was he just wrote a story. When a competent writer writes a bunch of competent stories, eventually one of them might reach kind of levels of success that this story did. I think that's I think that's a really good way to, to sum up who goes there. All right, that's it for tonight's episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in again for another episode of Unknown Orbits. I'm Steve Reitze. And I'm Patrick Baird. Good night. Good night. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. from Milwaukee.